Welcome back, everyone, to IntelliKey Leadership Stories. Kirsten, good to be with you again to talk more about conscious leaders. Yeah, so exciting. Always good to be back for another episode. We're excited to have our guest today, Dan Eds. Dan is a management consultant. His clients have included healthcare organizations, nonprofits. Dan, you have a unique angle to look at leadership, and we're just so glad to have you on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you. It's a privilege to be here. The name of your book is Leveraging the Genetics of Leadership, but I also love that subhead, Cracking the Code of Sustainable Team Performance, right. that the genetics part is what's in the organization, yes. not what's in the right. leader. You just said it better than I could. Well, there you go. I'll have to write a review and put that on the back thank of your you. book. <laughs> Welcome to IntelliKey Leadership Stories, leaders who are innovating, building, and guiding organizations with a higher vision, how they put their values into practice to achieve the full potential of themselves and their organizations. Here's your host, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Kirsten, good to be with you again to talk more about conscious leaders. Here we go. I think, Mark, what did you tell me this morning? We're hitting close to 50 episodes. We're on our way to 50. That's huge. Um, That's huge. Well, we're excited to have our guest today, Dan Eds. You know, one thing, Dan, is that Kirsten and I have had a chance to talk to so many leaders, you know, in so many different industries and different categories. And oftentimes we explore... I guess what I would call, Kirsten, what the emotional intelligence side, you know, Mm -hmm. how they deal with their employees, but also how they might relate to their customers. Dan, you have a different angle of this that's very metric-based, that's scoreboards and, you know, lean measurements and so forth, Mm -hmm. that we're really interested to explore this other side of the leadership brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, that in many ways that does define who I am. Uh, I tend to be a bit of a numbers guy. Uh, I work with numbers a lot, but I also believe that numbers like seldom tell us the whole story. And what I usually say is numbers is like gets you to the hiking trail when you're, when you're going on a hike in the mountains. It gets you to the head of the trail at some point, you actually have to get on the trail and start walking the path, and then you find out what the numbers are really telling you. And when I got looking at leadership, I was really looking at it from the standpoint of the organization and seeing this huge disconnect. And we've talked about this. We all talk about this. There's this huge disconnect between what the employees need and the employee experience and what's being offered within a culture of leadership. And when I got looking at that, I realized that there were ways of measuring that. By and large, though, I would say people aren't paying attention to the numbers. And you're saying that managers are looking at these numbers, what the employees want and what, not knowing how to translate or ignoring? I guess, uh, I mean, that would be two different things. Yeah, I'd say both. So most hospitals, I think, have some way of measuring employee engagement. You know, uh, hospitals use Gallup surveys, they use Press Ganey. A lot of different organizations use various tools to measure the levels of engagement of their workforce. By and large, most of those numbers are, are ignored because I think because they're, they're considered so hard to change. Yet, what I found was that when organizations made work 
workforce engagement, which is a terrific measure of worker satisfaction, when I found that that organizations really took those numbers seriously, actually made them a strategic initiative, actually built workforce engagement right into their business strategy, then those numbers started going up because then they took on the relevance of strategy. I mean, think about this. Right now in this country, there's only, I think it's 30, Gallup says there's like 34, 35% of the workforce that's actually engaged with their job. 66% are either not engaged or actively sabotaging the workplace. So yet every day, and you guys are involved with this, I've been involved with this, we're, we're helping our clients develop strategy, business strategies to be successful. And we assume that we can actually be successful with our business strategy when only a third of the workforce cares. Mm -hmm. So I have a question for you. So you measure the employee base to to look at the employee engagement. Mm -hmm. What is the culture at the top of the leadership style? Is it Machiavellian in nature? Is it top down drive the strategy? I mean, what do you find at the top that, because it starts at the top, right? Ultimately the CEO is responsible for that company. Ultimately, yes. But this is where I think the dichotomy starts. We assume that leadership is a style. And we assume that the style of the leadership of the CEO is what's going to transform the organization. Unfortunately, the average tenure of a corporate CEO is less than five years. The average tenure of a hospital CEO is like three and a half years. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about hospitals a lot because that's where I actually started doing the research. And in hospitals, not only is the tenure of the CEO on average three and a half years, but when those people, and and like half of them move on involuntarily. And when that, when that happens, the entire executive C-suite moves on as well. So why do we talk about leadership style when in fact the style is going to change every three and a half to five years? It's, it, it doesn't work. And that's why there is so much emphasis right now on a new leadership paradigm and we're trying to improve leadership all across the industry. Everybody's trying to improve the style of leadership. What I found though, was that highly successful organizations, I'm talking about organizations that consistently rank at the top of their industry. They don't worry about individual leadership style. What they actually do is create a system of leadership and then they train, coach, and mentor every leader and every manager to the requirements of that system. So, okay, so, so that system yeah. is right. You, you mentioned something. There is a paradigm shift in leadership and the average mm-hmm. day-to-day employee is calling for it. Management is not, but the people are. People that actually make the money for the organization. So this strategy that you deploy in training, because I agree with you 100%, right? There has Mm -hmm. to be a way that, you know, Mm -hmm. something that everybody aligns to and Mm -hmm. agrees with. That's followership. Mm -hmm. That's the buy-in process. Mm -hmm. What is that process? Is it aligned with that old paradigm we're speaking to, that strategy, or is it the new paradigm? Because this is a really touchy subject for especially the younger generation, they're not going to do it the same way, no matter how many strategies you deploy. Right. Well, I I think it's, uh, I think it's all the above. And in fact, uh, let me just challenge something that you just said. Oh, please do. So you talked about, you know, we, we have this 
this paradigm of leaders and followers. And the world is made up, made up of two kinds of people, leaders and followers. Um, about a year ago, we got an athletic park right in back of my backyard. On the other side of my fence, there's a sports field. About a year ago, there was a, a, a football coach who was coaching probably eight, nine, 10-year-old boys and how to play football. And this is a guy that had a girth that would suggest a heavy diet of pizza and beer. <laughs> and he's trying to uh, encourage his protégés to, to run faster in a, in a drill. And he's telling them, there's two kinds of people in the world, leaders and followers. Who are my leaders? The message being, if you're a better athlete and you can run faster, you're a leader. Therefore, you're a better human being. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm going to interrupt here real sure. quick because that necessarily wasn't the distinction I was creating because uh, I do right. fundamentally believe everybody leads their own life. Everybody's a leader of their own right. life. What I am saying is that there's only a few people at the top mm -hmm. and everybody below has to buy in to that strategy or a good percentage of it for it to be an effective KPI and measurable outcome. Right. Well, what I found is that they actually flip that. So organization here in Seattle, um, healthcare organization, uh, it's called Virginia Mason Medical Center. Virginia Mason 2001, I think it was, after a couple of years of financial, heavy financial losses, they realized they needed to do something radically different in how they delivered healthcare. They took the unprecedented step of going to Japan and adopting the Toyota production system in how they were going to deliver care. What is less known is that they also adopted the Toyota management system, which is actually defined as a system of leadership. Uh, today, Virginia Mason is the world's leader in the Toyota production system and applying it in healthcare. They teach it uh, worldwide. And in the last eight years, Virginia Mason has been ranked as one of the safest hospitals in the country. Some have even suggested the safest hospitals in the world. And that may not sound like much until you look at the data, which says that accidental and avoidable deaths in hospitals is one of the leading causes of death in America. Um, I think it's like tied for third or fourth at the moment. But what they do, instead of looking at leadership, leadership style, they say everything that we're going to do in terms of a management system is going to hang off of one individual primary value, which is respect. Respect for the work, respect for the worker, and respect for the patient. Everything hangs off of that value of respect. Now, that defines the experience of the workforce. You go to work for that organization, that's an organization of uh, 9,500 people. So they're pushing 10,000 people. Everything hangs off of that value of respect. So if you go to work there, you can expect to be respected. Now that has nothing to do with leadership style, but it has everything to do with setting up a system that says, this is how we respect our workforce. Mm -hmm. This is how we respect our patients. This is how we respect the work. And they have, for example, if you're familiar with Lean, Six Sigma, Toyota production system, um, they have a, a, what's called a gimba, which is a fancy way of saying management by walking around. Yeah. How they many of us trained every in Six leader. Sigma? I feel <laughs> every like day. every leader in here did yeah, Six there, Sigma there you go. We still use Lean <laughs> right. in our kitchen. <laughs> yeah. That's like the word. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. Why is this spatula right. here? That is not Lean. <laughs> 
Exactly. Exactly. And there's lots of organizations that do lean. I've worked with them. I've done lean. I'm a lean practitioner. I classify myself as a lean consultant. In fact, it was uh, after doing a lean engagement with, with a state, a large state agency, I began thinking, wait a minute, there's something fundamentally missing here, which happens to be the whole management side of it. But this hospital, they actually train, coach, and mentor every leader and clinic manager in the organization, not only how to do lean, but actually how to conduct a lean engagement. And they require them to conduct one to three lean, Kaizen, whatever word you want to call, workshops with their staff every year. So what that does is builds a culture of continuous improvement from the top all the way to the bottom. And, and Kirsten, you're right, it starts with the top, but even more in that organization, it starts with this single overriding value of respect. And Gary Kaplan could walk out of that organization today, and I'm quite confident that they can keep going for a year without any CEO inter, inter, interference because it's, they've designed a, a system, management system that keeps the whole thing running. Yeah. Well, Dan, you're, you've really, when you said uh, you flip it on its head and that it comes from the employees and it comes from the workforce rather than all top down. Yeah, the name of your book is Leveraging the Genetics of Leadership. Mm -hmm. But I also love that subhead, you know, cracking the code of sustainable team performance. And now as you talk, I didn't really get it necessarily from just the title and I read a few pages. But now I'm starting to understand that the genetics part Mm -hmm. is what's in the organization, not what's in the leader. Because right. that could be ex- interchangeable. Yes. You just said it better than I could. Well, there you go. I'll have to write a review and put that on the back <laughs> Thank of your you. book. <laughs> now I understand it better because you were describing this, and especially as Kirsten was referring to millennials, mm. like that's going to be a different DNA yep. and the genetics of what's, what it's going to take to keep a millennial employee engaged. And look, I'm not even going to Gen Z yet. Right. And and we might as well be talking about that because we're hiring them tomorrow too. Right. So I'm understanding that better that you're saying that we're designing rules, routines and habits and functions and measurements to make sure the culture is working. Yes. Not to make sure the employees doing the right job. You know? Right. Okay. Yeah. So that actually was one of the big ahas in the research was, you know, so I'm used to the whole idea of management, managers manage, they tell people what to do. What I saw, though, was that in, in really high performing organizations, I mean, take about, think about how we, how we approach people. Corporately, how do we deal with people? And we all work in, a, in systems of people. And, and what I found in these, these really high performing organizations, they have a very different understanding of people. Most organizations see people as an asset that has to be managed, which is kind of a cool way, a nice way of saying controlled. You know, we have to control people and what they do and how they do it and where they go and what they can do and what they can't do. These high-performing organizations, though, they, they see people as a resource that if we can develop that resource, we get more value. So, for example, uh, well, this, the, the Virginia Mason, the healthcare system here in Seattle, they put as much emphasis on developing the, the personal skills of their workforce as they do their professional skills. They have a viewpoint that if they can make a workforce, if they could develop a workforce that's more self-confident, more empowered, 
they're going to have a better employee. And they actually, in their leadership system, they actually train and coach and mentor their leaders how to, how to build up that sense of self-confidence and empowerment. So, for example, they have a, a really strange rule. If you're a manager or a leader in the organization, by rule, you are not to be a problem solver. Now, that flies in the face of anybody who's ever had any leadership training and coaching and mentoring. <laughs> you're taught to be a problem solver. And, and leaders and managers are considered to be terrific if they're great problem solvers. At this hospital, they teach you not to be a problem solver because when, when you solve someone else's problem, you take away from them the opportunity to, lo- to learn, to grow, to solve the problem themselves. And when, they, when that happens, the rank and file becomes more self-confident. They realize that their voice has value and is respected. And it, it does really two things. It pushes problem solving down lower into the organization where it problems ought to be solved, but it also builds a workforce of, that's of, of tremendous self-confidence and empowerment. And that's not so, just, that's not just a, we want, you know, better professional skills. Mm-hmm. We want to see people grow personally as well. Sorry, Kirsten, I interrupted you. You know, you spoke to a workforce that's more engaged, right? Metrics that actually measure how these employees are, you know, the employee experience. What are you yes. finding with this? Well, with the, with the employee experience? Yeah, in this organization that you're speaking to, right? So we, what I heard you say was it, you're spending a lot of time building up the employee. Mm-hmm. However, there's the company's experiencing exponential performance, right? Okay. Right. But what is the employee's experience? Are, is that a measurable event for you as well? And what is the outcome of that? Yeah, so I would suggest that uh, employee engagement is a terrific measurement of the employee experience. And this is where when we think about systems and, and, you know, this this can get very academic and very technical in a heartbeat. So I don't want to go, I don't want to do that. But we talk about leadership as as an organizational system. It really begins, what I found, it really begins with the employee experience. So this healthcare organization, they start out with a value of respect. Um, I was talking with um, uh, the the president of a small manufacturing company that has done incredible work. 200 employees annually trigger on their own, not the CEO, not the president, not not the executive suite, the rank and file employees. They, they identify on their own 1,000 to 1,250 uh, what they call Kaizen or process improvement initiatives or opportunities on their own. It's not, it's not the senior leaders. It's the, it's the 200 members of the workforce. Mm-hmm. And each one of those initiatives is saving the company on average $1,000. They have built that, they have built Kaizen to make so routine, this muscle memory, that they will actually uh, give uh, paid time off to a worker if they identify and conduct a Kaizen on the job or in their home. Actually, it was kind of funny. Uh, I'd gone through their tour and I got done. I said, so is there any overarching value to how you approach leadership? And the production man, who was kind of a big guy, he was probably 6'2", 6'3", 250 pounds. Um, I'm sitting in this chair and he stands up, walks over towards me, looks down at me, puts his hands on his hips and says, we practice servant leadership. 
So Dan, can't thank you enough for this conversation. As we close, I want to go back and maybe sum up things around this idea of respect. And I know that that's one organization's value, but overall, a more engaged employee, a more, the better experience at work. One of the words that you use in the book is is courage, Mm -hmm. that this empowerment allows for an employee working at a company Mm -hmm. to feel more courageous. Yeah. And I wondered how that expresses itself in speaking up, yep. you know, speaking for another person to advocate for them or speaking yep. against a policy. You know, do, does that respect translate into courage for an individual? Yeah, I think it has to. You know, one of the things that, I, that I'm starting to say more and more is it's not so important to have bold and courageous leadership. The math works better if you have a bold and courageous workforce. Mm-hmm. If you have a workforce that not only feels valued and respected if they speak up and say something uh, or sees an opportunity to improve their operation and then initiates that, you end up with a better employee, a better product, and a better organization. One of the core, one of the, in, in this hospital, the Virginia Mason, the hospital uh, I mentioned, they don't put so much emphasis on core values, but, as on, but on fundamental behaviors. They teach and coach and train core behaviors, one of which is speak up, which makes a lot of sense in an operating room. Mm-hmm. It also requires that the executives are coached or the management team yes. have been coached. Yes. to support that, right? Yeah, that's, and that's, right, I think, you, exactly the, yeah. the conversation. Does right. this culture yeah. and DNA of an organization yeah. exactly. uh, support that at every level? Absolutely. Because just because I have the courage to speak up, but if the other person doesn't have the courage to listen right. or right. to that's accept right. or admit or change, yep. Yep. then... And as we've seen in some of our conversations in our series of Affirming Black Voices, we don't speak mm-hmm. up because... It's D-Day, right? You want a paycheck, you do as you're told, and you tolerate the statements. I I think that goes back to, you know, you have to feel and you have to know for certain that it's a safe Mm -hmm. environment. And that's that emotional intelligence. That's that EQ, which is why the female CEOs have so many successful businesses right now. Right, right. One one quick close. So in a different healthcare organization I was working with a number of years ago, we were looking at this and how do they measure uh, essentially fear in the workplace. Mm. And they're actively trying to remove fear out of their workplace and do it within a, a system of leadership. So we were talking about how do you measure that? And they say, well, we have this thing where our workers can go into this essentially a software system and they can self-report errors or potential errors. So I'm a nurse. I almost give Dan a, a shot and it's the wrong shot. So a nurse can go in and, and self-report that, you know, he or she almost gave Dan the wrong medicine and without fear of, of any kind of, you know, incrimination. So I said, okay, so what, you know, what, where do you want those numbers to go? And I'm thinking, okay, the fewer the people self-reporting errors, that means the number of errors are going down. And they said, no, 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 no. We want that number to go up. We want the number of times the staff will go into the system and self-report errors and you know near misses. We want those numbers to go up because that means our workforce have the courage and the boldness to speak up and write about themselves, maybe making a mistake without fear of getting in trouble, which I thought was brilliant because That's, it was- a, It's very good. Were, 
they were they're measuring the, the the fear component in the workplace yeah very important measure well dan we can't thank you enough for the great conversation it's been very provocative we have many guests who give us some new information and some some new emotional thoughts but you've provoked us to think about some new questions and and really address some controversies that are out there in the workplace right now at every level of that leadership question so our guest has been dan eds His book is Leveraging the Genetics of Leadership. And as I mentioned, the subhead of the book, Cracking the Code of Sustainable Team Performance. It's available wherever you buy books. Dan, appreciate you being on the program with us. Thank you for the opportunity. I do appreciate it. And Kirsten, look forward to our future guests as we continue to explore how to improve our leadership qualities and how to reach our individual and our organizational intelligence, our real soul's purpose. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories with your hosts, Kirsten Gouldy and Mark Stenson. Connect with us on LinkedIn or visit our websites, www.pureintellikey.com and www.mark-stenson.com. IntelliKey Leadership Stories is copyright 2020. Thanks for listening to IntelliKey Leadership Stories.